1: I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, UFC 283 is in the books. Uh, it was maybe a lower profile pay-per-view for the UFC, but it actually left a lot of stuff we could talk about. Two new champions were crowned, a bunch of UFC mainstays nabbed victories. Brazil got its first pay-per-view event in quite a while. I think Jailton Almeida emerged as someone who's starting to become a legit threat at heavyweight. We will talk on this show primarily about the title fights today. Before we get into that, though, we had to pour one out for the big homie, Mauricio Milani Hua, who perhaps called it quits in the wake of a first-round TKO loss over the weekend. Ben, how are you going to remember the career of Shogun Hua?
2: You know, I can't point to one single event because I will remember really the arc from winning the Pride Grand Prix and having kind of one of the best single years of MMA combat that we had ever seen up to that point. And I remember kind of thinking, all right, this guy, Shogun, he's on top of the world here, wins the Pride Grand Prix. And then shortly after that, when Pride is purchased by the UFC and subsequently dissolved and uh, we're bringing most of the Pride guys over to the UFC, he did not look great when he showed up in the UFC. And we kind of went, well, shit, I guess it was a short time at the top for Shogun Hua. And then a the short time after that, or a couple years after that, I suppose, he's a UFC champion. I feel like we maybe think that that is easier or less impressive than it really is. Because when a guy can do that, he goes through that meat grinder of a pride tournament. He has some ups and downs. And then to become a UFC champion and to still have like an entire career worth of fighting after that. To be part of one of the greatest fights we had ever seen after that when he fought Dan Henderson in San Jose that night we were both there. All that kind of stuff. It's like that's a guy packing three, four different careers worth of stuff into one fighting career. Not to mention spanning several different eras.
1: Yeah. Uh, You and I now are old enough and have been around the sport long enough to remember Shogun Hua as a young gun. So to me, it is startling to see guys like this, you know, turn out to be 41 years of age and walk away essentially on the heels of a featured prelim bout on the UFC. Shogun finished up two, four, and one in his final handful of fights. But I think you're right. I have to say, winning the 2005 Pride Middleweight Grand Prix was one of the great individual accomplishments, let's say, in this sport, with wins over Quentin Jackson, uh, Roger Nog, Alistair Overeem, and Ricardo Arona to win that. Which was a, a, a quite a statement back in the day that that happened, and Shogun honestly is like one of the last representatives of this previous era of mixed martial arts when there was still a lot of stuff that felt like myth and legend kind of going on, right? Because we had these two major federations, message board activity was still kind of at its height, and you would you know you would hear about these guys and how unstoppable they were. And, you know, you would watch Pride and you'd see Shogun like fly through that Grand Prix and do all this uh, amazing stuff. And you would start to wonder like, oh, this guy, maybe this guy's the best light heavyweight on the planet. Or when at the time Pride called middleweights on the planet. And, you know, so there was so much kind of left up to conjecture conjecture and guesswork and like speculation. Uh, That's one of the things I will remember about him, that like he was one of these guys in the Pride era that seem to inspire awe, but from a distance, at least for us American fans. Cause like you could watch him on Pride, although back in the back in those days it was a lot of like videotape. You're hunting down videotapes at the local blockbuster, right? And watching this shit after the fact. So it's just he's one of the last representatives of what I now I guess consider to be sort of a bygone era in MMA.
2: Yeah. And I think We maybe don't realize how hard it is to stay at or around the top for that long. But then when you look at some other people who we've come to know who, you know, they seem like they were in our life for a season or so, maybe they were up there for a year in the top five or something like that. But to be somebody who was an important person in the sport for years and years and years, that takes not only some talent, skill, it takes just like resiliency and a sort of like physical but also mental psychological resiliency. Because one of the things that we've both talked about before, that's crazy when you follow fight sports for years, is that you see these guys all, you're going to go through some things. And it's like the the normal lifespan of a person, the way anybody's going to go through some things in their life and their career, but it's condensed down into like 5 years, 10 years maybe. So much stuff, so many ups and downs. You hear them talk about it all the time, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And you're going to go through that over and over and over again. That that's going to wear some people out. You know, just just the training camps alone are going to wear some people out, not to mention the uh, emotional roller coaster of this sport, the the wins and the losses, the the all the getting screwed over by the politics of the sport, all that kind of shit, and to go through it for that long and to be as relevant as he's been for that long, that's kind of remarkable. And yeah. also to to end it all up, where nobody really has anything too bad to say about you, man. Everybody kind of liked you, like yeah, you you didn't turn out to be some colossal asshole you didn't alienate a whole bunch of people make a ton of enemies you get to walk out of the door with your your head held high um that's pretty remarkable in itself
1: yeah shogun arrived in pride october of 2003 for pride bushido once one so you're looking at damn near 20 years for this man uh at the top of the essentially at the top of the sport arrived in the ufc at 16 and 2 so he was uh Had really done a lot of work even prior to that. And, uh, you know, we always have to, I guess, buttress these MMA retirement talks with a little bit of skepticism, a grain of salt, especially with so many now other options, different places fighters can go outside the UFC. But if this does indeed stick for Shogun, you know, a great career, one of the great careers, I think, for Mauricio Hogan, Shogun Hua. Remember, you're listening to the Co Main Event podcast proper. This show drops for free every Monday afternoon in your timelines and podcast libraries. Don't forget to go out and follow the show on Instagram at CME if you nasty. And if you really want to support the show, you know where to find us. Ben, folks, and I are over at Patreon all week, churning out that additional MMA content. We've got Wednesdays live chat where we take your questions for a full sixty minutes. We've got Thursdays doing the damn thing podcast, and of course friday's power hour which is a full extra hour of curated mma talk from the two hosts you love to love equally come get down with us we've got a patronage tier for every budget head on over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to join the team support the podcast that supports you so well and so tenderly keep the discourse unfettered and keep this train on the tracks as we move through 2023 again Patreon.com slash co-main event. We got music this week from our guy James, a.k.a. the Funk Soul Brother, a retired MMA fighter and hip-hop producer living in Seoul. Uh, if you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at Instagram.com slash FSBBeats or at YouTube.com slash Brother Beats. And of course, as you all know by now, the word soul in Funk Soul Brother is S-E-O-U-L. Soul. Three rounds as usual this week in the Komain Event Podcast. In round number one, Jamal Hill captured the UFC light heavyweight title by beating the brakes off beloved forty-three-year-old former champion Glover Toshira in Brazil. What could a Jamal Hill era look like in the UFC? And in round number two, Brandon Moreno and Davison Figueredo have already done it again, brother, more times than two men probably ever should. But does a stoppage due to Figgy's eye swelling shut really settle their fantastic series? And in round number three, Jose Aldo is going into the UFC Hall of Fame, a well-deserved honor for a great fighter we can all celebrate as long as you ignore the whole providing refuge for a fascist coup plotter thing. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail.
2: Listener mail.
1: This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by our friends at NordVPN. NordVPN is one of my favorite online products right now. I use it on all my devices. Ben has it too. It's super fast and easy to use. Uh, even I can figure it out, which is saying something. NordVPN will give you the peace of mind of knowing that all your personal information is safe online, whether you're using the internet at home, traveling, or just running around town, and your phone is bouncing from public Wi Fi to public Wi Fi. Ben, I know you. You love the nord vpn what do you use it for
2: well you know my favorite thing about it is the way that it'll click on to protect you when you're going to various public wi-fis as i am known to do you know i'm a man about town chad yeah so
1: no i know there's not one single wi-fi that can uh control ben folks he can't be contained no by one wi-fi he's gonna be going from wi-fi to wi-fi all day
2: it doesn't matter where i am it doesn't matter if i'm at the bowling alley it doesn't matter if I'm at the pool hall, hustling some sharps with my pool cue. Chad, it doesn't matter if I'm at the darts place where they throw Pavilion? darts. Darts Pavilion. Gallery. NordVPN has me covered. Because you know I'm beyond all those public Wi-Fis as I, a sporting man, am going about town, taking people's money in a series of, of games and, and amusements. You know that I got to jump on every once in a while, check my Twitter, shit like that, post to the Grams, Mm -hmm. LOL, just beat some sharps at billiards. NordVPN has me covered.
1: Always in search of that 300 game on the lanes. I know that's true about you. We've been telling you guys about NordVPN and its security bundle for a while now. NordVPN has three easy options for how to use it. You can get the standard plan for your basic VPN needs. You can get the plus plan if you need a little something extra. And if you want to go for the whole hog, the big dog, you can sign up for the complete plan, which will take care of your every need. Enjoy the leading VPN service and malware blocker. Generate and store strong passwords, protect files in an encrypted cloud. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to NordVPN/Comain to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan. Plan, plus a bonus gift. It's completely risk free with Nord's 30 day money back guarantee. Well, Ben, the mail about Francis and Ganu continues to pour in over at the inbox. So we're going to do this one from Kobe this week, even though it's a little bit long. He says, the Lineal World Association of Mixed Martial Arts, a.k.a. WAMA, heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou, has left the UFC, and he took the UFC heavyweight championship with him. And while the WAMA title is as legitimate in 2023 as it was in 2008, it <laughs> got me okay. thinking. He means not legitimate at yeah, all. Yeah, I get it. Yours. Mm-hmm. Case you're scoring at home, is Francis Ngannou's MMA is Francis Ngannou MMA's first chance for a legitimately recognized world heavyweight champion. I mean, Ngannou held the UFC title and never lost it, so casuals might respect him as the best. Hardcore fans would respect a non-UFC title held by Ngannou, I think. Now all that's left is other MMA promotions. In my mind, the second-tier MMA promotions, Ryzen One, Bellator, PFL, should stop fighting about who's the number one, number two MMA promotion and. Share any actual world title with Nganou as the first title holder. He could even set up Nganou promotions and co-promote with MMA organizations that are willing to let their heavyweight champ go for the quote-unquote world title. Unfortunately, the actual WAMA belt sold on eBay in 2011, so Nganou promotions would need to find a new one. What are your thoughts on this longtime MMA fan's pipe dream?
2: Well, whoever bought that belt on eBay in 2011, I don't know what they're doing with it now, but they might willing to entertain some offers because yeah. it could be possible that the the big return on investment they were visualizing did not come to pass. You know what we
1: might consider is just having Francis gano go to their house and ask them for it.
2: <laughs> just you know, Engano shows up at your house, knocks on the door in his very polite, quiet voice, asks if you would consider letting him have the belt that is rightfully his. Yeah. I wish you would say no.
1: <laughs> I remember one time Frank Meir told me that he preferred to do his business in person rather than on the phone because he was like, you know, people are just a lot more reasonable in person. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I bet they are, Frank. I bet they are a lot more reasonable when they have to talk to you in person. So, you know, we'll try it out with big Fran. Now. This is a pipe dream. I agree that the chances of this happening are very slim. But when you start thinking about it, when you really start to think about the propositions that this might begin to create for these other MMA organizations, would this actually kind of be to everyone's benefit? Sort of maybe with the exception of Francis Ngannou when you start to think about the kind of schedule he might have to keep. But if he could make a chunk of change, a large amount of money doing this, Could you foresee a world where you have a recognized world MMA heavyweight champion who maybe through a series of one fight deals is allowed to kind of flit from one organization to another and like do pay-per-view events for all of these different second class MMA organizations?
2: The question is, who does he fight? And what happens if he loses to somebody who then is not free to flit from organization to organization under a series of one fight deals like one thing I enjoy I'm glad somebody is still keeping track of who the lineal whamma champion is uh, I went and looked it up here and it seems like somebody has a reddit thread from a few years ago but that it allows us to trace it now as we all know the inaugural whamma heavyweight champion was Fedor Emelianenko back in the course, affliction days
1: of course they made the belt specifically for him
2: now, Fabrizio Verdoom, I believe, might be the only... Well, no. Fabrizio Verdoom and Stipe are the only two-time holders of the Whamma belt. Because Fabrizio Verdoom, you recall, took it from Fedor when he got that submission on him in, in Force that made all our heads explode. He lost it then to Alistair Overeem, uh, who in turn lost it to Bigfoot Silva. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that turn coming. I-
1: the proud history of the Lama heavyweight title.
2: And then Cain Velasquez took it off of Bigfoot Silva. Remember back when we used to do a thing where we'd have Cain Velasquez beat the shit out of Bigfoot Silva once a year for no good yeah. reason? Uh, and then Cain Velasquez, when he was no longer sea level Cain, lost it to Fabricio Verdum of Mexico City. Fabricio lost it to Stipe. Stipe lost it to Cormier, but then Stipe got it back from Cormier. And then Bay lost it to Francis Ngannou, and that is where it now resides.
1: Okay. I guarantee you most of those guys have no idea that at one point they were they could have been considered the well, Whammy Heavyweight Then champion.
2: shit, somebody should call Bigfoot up right now and tell him, don't you think he could use this to brighten his day? I don't even know. A little shot in the arm yeah. for Bigfoot. Silver. I mean, it'll probably make him decide he should fight for 10 more years. But th- somebody call him up. Somebody who is listening to Sound of My Voice and has Bigfoot's number, call him up right now and be like, bro did you know that you were once the wham heavyweight champion? He'd be like, well, all right, I feel yeah. a little better now.
1: When I say a shot in the arm for Bigfoot Silva, I no pun intended you guys. <laughs> uh, but if you're Francis and and one of the reasons that you cited for leaving the UFC was your personal freedom. It didn't sound like he wanted to be locked down in this long-term ever extending automatically uh, extending UFC deal. Would you consider a situation where you could do like a series of one fight deals, where you fight all of these other organizations' heavyweight champions? And would the other organizations actually benefit from from signing on with an with a deal like that?
2: Well, I would think everybody but the UFC ought to think, "What do you have to lose?" Yeah, because for Encarnado, if he shows up in one Bellator, PFL, Ryzen, wherever. He going to bring some eyeballs that you would not have gotten otherwise. And if your concern is, well, we're going to promote this one fight and then, boof, he's gone. I mean, shit, sure. that That is a, a strong possibility. But it's also, if it's the only way you're going to get you any Ngannou at all, maybe not such a bad deal. You know, like, especially if I were Francis Ngannou and I had exited the UFC under these circumstances and with these concerns... Going on sort of fighting walkabout would be the thing that I was focused on doing. Because w- wouldn't we all be kind of disappointed if it just turns out Francis Ngannou leaves the UFC and its restrictive contract deals to sign a fucking six-fight deal with Bellator or something, and yeah. then he's just there, like he's just there doing Bellator stuff and nothing else until that contract runs out? Because we would just be like, "What the hell, man? This it seems like you've just you've traded one master for another." And yeah. I don't know how it's better. Uh, uh, improvement in circumstances for you.
1: I am already on the record saying I don't think Francis Ngannou's next fight should be in MMA. But if he's going to stick around, he should try to, try to do some rad shit like this. That's that's my official position. Next uh, piece of mail this week comes to us from Arthur Dent, who if my memory of my high school reading habits is correct, Ben Folks, I believe is a character in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay, Nerd. He writes, I was as uncomfortable as any of us watching Jessica Andrade use Lauren Murphy's face as a speed bag for 15 minutes, but I didn't share DC's take that the ref should have stopped it. Murphy was defending herself to the extent that she ever was during the entire fight. She never went down. She never seemed out of it being you know, it being consciousness, not the fight, which she was out of before the ink dried. The reality was that she was just outclassed. And isn't that the Booker's problem? Isn't that her corner's problem? Why did her corner allow her to go back out for the third round? Uh, This was a bit of an ugly fight to watch between Jessica Andrade and Lauren Murphy on the pay-per-view card of UFC 283. But I kind of agree. This was one where Lauren Murphy just essentially got battered from start to finish. But at the t- at the same time, one of the things we know about Lauren Murphy, she's tough as nails and she is super game. And she was sort of that way throughout this fight. I don't know that I would have would have thought that the ref should have stopped it, but I do agree that perhaps the corner should have taken a long look at this thing, especially before the final round.
2: Yeah, I mean, I hate to invoke this, but I feel like we've seen worse. Yeah, we, we've definitely seen worse beatings and ones that seemed more one-sided and more uh, pointless to continue. And we've watched them continue. And especially this being a three round fight. Cause so in the second round is where it really kind of gets bad where she's pouring it on. She's just cracking her with some, some really sharp shots. And then Lauren Murphy goes back to her corner and it'd be one thing if her corner was saying like, Hey, We're doing exactly what we wanted to do, but we're just getting beat at it. So, like, let's go out there and try more of the same. But they're not. They're telling her, we need to get this fight to the ground. That's what we need to do. You got to commit to the level chains, get her down. That's where we're going to win this fight. And I guess at least that's something. At least we're saying, like, okay, the reason you're getting beat up right now is because you're boxing with her. And that's not what we want to do. We need to do a different thing. And so you're sending her out there with something. You're not just sending her out like, hey, let's let's just tough our way through it. Although I do want to point out here, during the second round, I distinctly heard someone in Lauren Murphy's corner say, you got to put your hands on her.
1: <laughs>
2: they invoked the put your hands on him Scotty corner work, the, the legendary corner work of one Joe Warren in... Right up there with some of those least helpful corner advices such as get up and punch him in the face. Put your hands on her. Got to put your hands on her. And Laura Murphy's like, every time I get close to her, I'm getting hit hit with three different hooks before I can get out of range again. I mean, I, I didn't think it was something where it's like, this person is suffering life and career altering damage and it will only get worse, and if it's we're we're putting her at unnecessary risk if it goes on for five more minutes. It just didn't feel like it was that bad to me. And if you're... Especially, I think sometimes about how Greg Jackson used to talk about it, where he'd be like, you have to go into each fight thinking that the fight is a special time. That we're kind of going to... We're going to go through some stuff, probably. We're going to have to push through some stuff. And you have to approach it with that in your mind. You can't just sit there and go like, well, it doesn't look like it's going great. Let's quit. Cause if you did that, there'd be a lot of places where it would be reasonable to do that. But if you did that, then you're kind of in the wrong line of work to begin with. And yeah. I think that there's something to that.
1: Yeah. Uh, and you know, Lauren Murphy has been with the same corner for a long time. Her husband, I believe is one of her corner people, if not her chief corner person, uh, So you got to think that they probably know her better than anyone else for her part. She's been on social media this week saying that she thanked her corner for not stopping the fight. She didn't think that they should stop the fight. She was glad that they let her go out there and finish it out. Sometimes we're in a situation where we need, you know, corners and ringside doctors and referees to protect fighters from themselves. I'm not a hundred percent sure that this was a case like that. Like it's, it's a, Lauren Murphy has been on Twitter saying she wanted a tough fight and she got it and she's, she's happy with the, the, you know, the way things turned out, except that she didn't win and her injuries are going to heal and she'll be back. So, uh, I don't have a ton of criticism for this and except to say that if I was in the corner, I would have thought about it. So, uh, I don't know what you can say beyond that really. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Dustin Pettit on Patreon. He said, UFC made a huge deal marketing-wise about being back in Brazil slash Rio again, but I got to say, that crowd sucked. <laughs> the Vi Marrera chant was not even chanted near as much as usual. Was the marketing push just a COVID victory lap? The UFC declaring this Brazil the new frontier after the old Canada and the old Brazil, of course. Uh, you know what? This This wasn't an over-the-top, absolutely frenzied Brazilian crowd like we have seen sometimes in the past. But I got to say, I felt like they were actually, you know, pretty hot during the Jessica Andrade-Lauren Murphy fight. Uh, and they started out hot in the Davis and Figueredo, brandon Moreno fight. But maybe it's hard to be a rabid, over-the-top Brazilian crowd when you know, Shogun who was going out there and losing and then you lose both the title fights at the end of the night. It's just, you know, especially down the stretch, aside from Gilbert Burns, didn't turn out to be a great night for the Brazilian fans. So I kind of understand maybe if they weren't totally, uh, you know, out of control by the time this thing was over.
2: Yeah, it did feel like where'd they all go by the end of it? And Where were they to begin it? Because maybe we just have unrealistic expectations based on some of what we've seen before. But I remember going to that one. Granted, it was the first one in Brazil in a long time. And it was the first one under Zufa that they had it back in Brazil when Anderson Silva fought Yushin Okami. We had a whole bunch of good uh, Brazilian fighters on that one. And it was in Rio. And that place, there was not an empty seat for the first fight, for the, the curtain jerker of the prelims. And they were hyped up all night and stayed that way. And so I think maybe some of us went like, okay, this the, the Brazilian fight fan vibe is just way different, way higher energy, and uh, way more enthusiastic, and it will always be thus. And then maybe even if you hadn't been there for a while during the pandemic, it's still not that. I heard some people saying that they thought like, okay, the time difference, like when it started and everything, it was pretty late there, so maybe they just people wanted to get out of there at a certain time. I mean, I remember being later than usual when I went to that Brazilian one. uh, I don't know when it was 2016 or something like that. So like that, I I can understand to a point Like, you know, if it's 2 AM and y'all, your heroes are getting their asses kicked and you go, well, how we could beat the traffic if we get out of here now. I get it a little bit, but it did. I, I had some of the same thoughts when I was watching because it was like, man, I'm watching the prelims, like several fights into the prelims, and there's a lot of empty seats out there, and you're not used to seeing that at a UFC event in Brazil. And then, you know, you're seeing them like uh, guy stands there, makes a heartfelt speech to a damn near empty arena by the end, and you're like, what the hell's going on? This is yeah. This is just not what we're used to. Yeah.
1: No, I think you make a good point. We're going to squeeze one more in here from that guy from game of thrones. So that
2: could be a lot of people. Okay. There's several guys in that from what I recall.
1: Yeah. He writes, we are dazed. We are days removed from what may well be the signature moment of MMA in 2023. Yuri peas. I'm coming. I'm coming (laughs) video in the snow. This has to be a hall of fame. Weirds mobile moment, right? You see this video, Ben? Yeah, I saw it. I'm on board. Uh, you know, I'm hyped now. I'm ready for, uh, for yuri P's return, almost nothing'll get you going like a big Viking looking guy standing in the snow, screaming at Jamal Hill via the internet.
2: I mean, as far as Hall of Fame Weirdsmobile moment, give Yuri P some time. I feel like this man's work in the Weirdsmobile space is nowhere near complete yet,
1: yeah, he's just getting started, yeah,
2: he's just getting started.
1: All right, we will segue now into our discussion about the UFC light heavyweight title and its new owner. That's coming up in round number one. You know how to reach out and get a hold of the co-main event podcast. If you have a question, comment or concern that you would like us to address in future listener mails, you go to the website co-main and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, we're going to get going with round number one. Well, Ben, last week on the Power Hour, over on the Patreon page, our questions about Jamal Hill were really twofold. Number one, we talked a little bit about the competition he had faced leading up to this kind of out-of-the-blue title shot at UFC 283. He had defeated Jimmy Crute, Johnny Walker, and Tiago Santos in his most recent three fights. Uh, We questioned if that would really set him up for a step-up in competition to the championship level. We also, or you rather, pointed out he had had most of his previous UFC fights during the pandemic era and had fought most of them at the apex in front of either no crowd at all or a very, very small crowd, and we didn't know how he would fare stepping up, going to Rio de Janeiro and fighting Glover Tashira in front of 13,600 fans. As it turned out, Jamal Hill was not overwhelmed by the moment in the slightest. He went out there and pitched a clean sweep. In fact, scored all three judges' scorecards 50-44 to defeat Glover Tashira by unanimous decision. So your new UFC light heavyweight champion as of Saturday night and this Monday afternoon is Jamal Hill. Kinda kind of an out of the blue title holder, which could be fun for the division, I think, as we move forward. What was your uh what was your reaction to this title fight?
2: Yeah, well for one thing, I was impressed with Jamal Hill's all-around game. The especially yeah. the thing that I felt like really was a difference between what we saw in the the Glover's fight with Yuri P and then what we saw with Glover's fight with Jamal Hill was that when Glover got himself into trouble on the feet. With Jamal Hill, he was generally not able to cool things off with a takedown. He yeah. he, When he reached for some of those, uh, he just didn't find it. When he tried to get in the clinch where we thought that he might have a chance to have success, slow the fight down a little bit, get it more into his kind of a pace. Then he just got tenderized with knees a lot of the time from Jamal Hill, and Jamal Hill just seemed like he had an answer for everything Glover was doing. And he also, you know, he took a couple good hard shots from Glover and did not appear too bothered by any of them, Uh, and was just able to do a whole lot of different stuff that, that Glover did have problems with. So... I was impressed with just like all the the, not only the poise he showed in the big opportunity didn't seem nervous, didn't seem like he wasn't ready for it, but also just had a pretty good all around game at light heavyweight. I still think the nature of the how he came to possess the title is going to make it so that people maybe don't look at him as the champion quite yet. It's going to it's going to take something else, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, he's going to have to fight Yuri, I think, because that's the guy you need to beat to really prove that you're the number one guy now. Uh, Although I don't really see how you could take anything away from Jamal Hill after this performance. He was pretty darn impressive for 25 full minutes. As you said, defending those early Glover-Tashira takedown attempts with knees and uppercuts up the middle, and his just flat-out defensive wrestling was pretty impressive. And then when he started to uncork those high kicks from the southpaw position, which seemed to catch Glover by surprise, that was the thing that really uh, kind of turned turned the tide. Some nasty ground and pound as well from Jamal Hill when he was able to get uh, top position a couple times during this fight. Eventually, as this was going on, man, you had to wonder... <laughs> how Glover Teixeira was even still there with some of the punishment that he was taking from Jamal Hill. And at this point, man, what do you even say about Glover? We talk a lot about uh, gameness in this sport. I know it's it's a term that the Brazilian fans like to use a lot. Glover's gameness is just off the damn charts. He never faded. He never, well, he never really gave up. He was still coming back just when you'd think he was out of it, he would fire back with some hard shots and just kind of keep battling back even as his face became a mess in the latter stages of this fight. I remember years ago, Cabbage Correa used to say that his head was full of, quote, concrete and stuff. Mm -hmm. And not that I mean it in any way as a disrespectful thing for Glover because he's a guy that we all like, but it kind of seems like he has the same thing going on.
2: Yeah, and especially uh, impressive for A 43-year-old man. As you know, Chad, Glover and I are almost the exact same age. We're basically twins. I don't know if I've mentioned that before. We've Um, heard that, yeah. But to go out there, I mean, compare it with what we saw from Shogun, what we have seen from Shogun. Because mostly, people do not become more resilient with age. That your ability to take punches doesn't tend to get better in your 40s for most fighters. But Glover, I mean... He he has taken some absolute shots both in this fight and the Yuri Prohazka fight. And he seems like he, you know, he'll get hurt every once in a while, but his recovery ability is like really fast. Um, and just his desire to keep fighting. Like you could see it there at the end where uh people are kind of look at it like, Well, I don't know. It seems like this is sort of one-way traffic here, man. What are we doing? And he's just like, Hey, fuck let's fucking fight. Get out of my way. Yeah.
1: I I believe his exact words headed into the final round was let's go, fucking A.
2: (laughs) Fucking A, indeed. You know? And. I, I got to think at least some of that must have been that he has it in his mind that, hey, you know, you get this crack at the title again. If you don't win it, there's probably not going to be another one. And he probably had it in his mind that that's probably going to be it. And so maybe it's a little easier to dig deep that telling yourself, like, there's, there's never going to be a tomorrow in your fight career. This is going to be it. And leaving the gloves there in the cage afterwards. But it's still damned impressive to see a 43-year-old man with that sort of uh, – desire still to fight when so many other people get that desire squeezed out of them by this fight game itself. Um, and also the physical ability to keep doing it.
1: Yeah. Uh, we had John Hackleman in the corner whispering about how maybe he wanted to stop the fight heading into the fifth. There were some terrible cuts on Glover to yeah. face. And then Glover goes out there in that final rounds round and he's out there getting takedowns and getting Mount just a, an unbelievably gutsy performance uh, from Glover to Shira. I did want to, you know, speculate a little bit here about what a Jamal Hill title reign could look like. As I said at the top of the sh- of the round, uh, it's kind of cool to have an out of the blue heavyweight champion, just because this division was ruled by John Jones for so long, and then after John Jones left, you kind of had Jan Blahovich and Glover Tashira and Yuri Prohaska trading it back and forth in a bit of a round robin tournament to have. Jamal Hill now kind of jump up and seize the title just creates a lot of new opportunities in this division. And uh if he can have some success, obviously, as we mentioned, he's gonna have to fight Yuri, but like Jamal Hill seems like a legitimately kind of fun dude to have around at the top of 205 pounds, which frankly I'll take it in this division right now.
2: Yeah. I mean, a little bit of new blood, new movement going on is not a bad thing. And it also gets a whole bunch of other people Going, hey, here's a guy. uh, Maybe I feel like I look at him and I think I could beat that guy, or maybe I just look at him and feel like I haven't had a chance to fight that guy yet. Like that's the we've seen it before sometimes where when somebody gets to the title sort of late in their career and they've got thirty or forty fights, or it's like who do you find for them that is a fresh matchup? Just because they had to fight everybody to get there. And Jamal Hill wins the title in like his fourteenth pro fight. There's a whole bunch of people that are looking at him being like, I haven't had a crack at that guy yet. Like, maybe uh, now the division feels like it opens up a little bit and there's more opportunities, more potential fights that you could make there. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But I do think, I don't even know, you know, who knows what the timeline really is on the worst shoulder injury in the history of shoulders for Yuri Prohaska to come back. I don't know if it necessarily has to be a win over him uh, because I think people are, as time goes on, going to look at it and be like, and Yuri was losing to Glover and had to get that submission uh, in the final round was, with time ticking down, whereas Jamal Hill just took him apart from the very beginning. But you are going to have to defend it at a time or two before people go, okay, we are settled into this new reality, and this is really the champ.
1: Yeah. Also, a legitimately heartwarming scene after this thing was over between Jamal Hill and his coaches, and then Daniel Cormier getting down on his knees in his nice suit in the octagon to interview jamal hill so you know you'll love to see it he's the first guy off the contender series to become a ufc champion uh and as you said perhaps we await the return of yuri prohaska to to solidify all that but uh I, th- I felt like you had to feel good for uh jamal hill after this thing was over maybe you know you had to feel as good for jamal hill as maybe we felt bad for glover Teixeira.
2: You know what I gotta wonder when everybody's talking about here's the first champion off of Dana White's contender series is what kind of contract is he on? Yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Because it might also be the champion working the cheapest in the UFC right now.
1: Yeah, you might wanna uh you might wanna redress that if you're Jamal Hill. Looks like he's had eight fights in the UFC, so you know, maybe we're getting toward the end of that initial contract. Maybe we'll maybe we'll get into something better here. Uh, All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week?
2: Well, Chad, do you see how Barstool Sports went and did you got Terrence McKinney?
1: I did see that. I just saw it online a little while ago, and I saw his reaction.
2: Uh, And that's that's rough, man. That's rough. That is rough, especially because, as I've said on numerous occasions, usually with a a little bit of a different backdrop. The result of a cage fight has nothing to teach us about moral or ethical rightness. It also has nothing to teach us about who knows what the fuck they're talking about in other regards and who doesn't. Because Terrence McKinney made some comment about Barstool Sports feeling like, you know, he didn't, that they don't know. Uh, what they're talking about when it comes to MMA. He goes out there, has a, a tough fight with Ishmael Von Veeam, and gets a, I mean, honestly, it was a he-dead kind of moment. It was a, a beautiful flying knee knockout. Yeah. And so you got to give that man his credit for that, because just, he's just pulling off a, a great maneuver there. But then Barstool Sports is going to post that picture of of uh, Terrence McKinney, and with the, the headline, I believe, is Terrence McKinney gets knocked out cold just hours after claiming Barstool didn't know sports. You don't suddenly know what you're talking about just because the guy lost a fight. <laughs> if you didn't know what you're talking about before, he could be right about that. He could be wrong. But him losing the fight doesn't doesn't have any bearing on any of that. Are you fucking kidding me? This is how you're going to do people? This guy gets in there in a cage fight, stripped to the waist, Chad, to fight some scary-ass dude down in Brazil, and you're going to use it as an opportunity to talk shit on him because he didn't think that you knew what you were talking about in the sport. Are you fucking kidding me. That ain't no way to do you find, people.
1: You fucking kidding me. Well, Ben, did you see the reports out this weekend of Colby Covington breaking K Fabe?
2: <laughs> you see my surprised face?
1: A story from Gilbert Burns at the UFC, I think it was the post fight press conference from this event over the weekend, talking about his run in with Colby Covington. He said I'm looking at the uh Transcript here from Nolan King and Ken Hathaway, by the way, on MMA Junkie. Here is uh, Gilbert Burns' quote. I looked at him. I nodded my head and he said, come here. And I said, oh, shit, it's on. I walked uh, (laughs) over to win and I was ready burns uh said i said what's up and he said yo i'm a huge fan brother he was super cool i'm pretty honest right now i don't have to lie he was super cool he said yo i'm a huge fan i'm a character i just want to make money i appreciate you you have a beautiful family he was super cool it was even getting weird because he was going on for over two minutes (laughs) Bro, (laughs) bro i like what you did in your last fight i was like man look at this guy You fucking kidding me, man? You cannot break kayfabe out here, Colby Covington. Did 1980s professional wrestling teach us nothing? Did you not learn at the knee of the man himself, Chael Sonnen? Don't break kayfabe, not in public. Man, you fucking kidding me? Here's the old adage, Ben, if you're nice once, people are going to expect you to be nice all the time. Come on, Colby Covington. You got to keep up the heel gimmick if that's what you're doing. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me?
2: Jed, you ever had a guy go on for so long about how great you are that it got weird?
1: (laughs) I was still waiting for it. Still waiting for my time. All right. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
2: Well, Chad, it's finally, finally, maybe over. Maybe we have finally decided this whole Brandon Moreno, Davy Figgs scenario. Took us four goddamn fights and just about every possible result. (laughs) But now we've finally gotten here where one guy has won two fights. That guy is Brandon Moreno. However, did the way he won this particular fight make you think that, damn it, we might have to do it again, 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 brother? Yeah.
1: You're out here saying it's over, and in my mind I'm thinking,
2: is it though? It better be over. Come on, I can't take another one.
1: I mean, I guess you have to admit that it would be a, a classically MMA outcome If the final fight in the great series between Davey Figgs and Brandon Moreno ended via doctor stoppage after the third round, because one guy's eye had swelled all the way shut. And look, Brandon Moreno had legitimately won the first three rounds and sort of gave every impression that he was going to cruise to victory. But a doctor stoppage after the third felt somewhat anticlimactic to me, like, uh, you know, an unsatisfying end, if you will, to this great rivalry. And honestly, like, I don't think it'll happen next, but I would be a little bit surprised if uh, if these guys don't fight again at some point point. and whether or not you want to link that together with this series that they've had or if enough time will pass that it feels like its own new individual thing. I don't know. But they number one, they both seem so good that it's not, would not be a surprise to me to see them both kind of rise to the top. Number two, all of their fights have been good and competitive. Uh, and number three, I you know, maybe Brandon Moreno just kind of cleans house on some of these other flyweight uh, contenders and we get back to this matchup.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's possible. Uh, to, to the argument that a doctor stoppage in the fight is not conclusive enough. I mean, I agree with you that, you know, he was winning up until that point with a doctor stoppage and the eye didn't close by itself. You didn't get a bug fly in your eye. And that's why it closed up and you couldn't see it happened because the man punched you in your fucking eye. Like it was a direct result of something he did on purpose, trying to hurt you and he accomplished it. So that to me, it's not just like, you know, when somebody's, it turns an ankle or their their knee blows out or something because they stepped on the the Bud Light decal in the center of the cage. This is this guy did a thing to you, and that thing resulted in the fight being stopped, and he was already winning up until that point. So for me, I yeah. feel like I can sleep well at night feeling like I know what's going on at men's flyweight in the UFC, that the, the belt yeah. is on the right waist at this point. Yeah,
1: and really, you didn't have a choice. You pretty much had to stop it because... Davis and Figueredo could not see it all out of that one eye. Now, it is also some classic MMA shit that we got ourselves into a little bit of controversy with that punch that did the damage on Davis and Figueredo. had to look at the the multiple replays from different angles to find out if it was uh, a punch or an eye poke. I got to say on the slow motion replays, especially when you get the kind of alternate angle where you can see from behind Davis and Figueredo, it did, in fact, look like a clean shot. It did look like uh, the thumb knuckle, which is an underutilized weapon in MMA. But the thumb knuckle did the damage to Davis and Figueredo, although there's like that punch kind of drags down his face after it lands. But you still got to consider it to be a clean shot.
2: Yeah, I, I assume the thumb knuckle features prominently in some Dandasso handbooks out there floating around. Yeah, If not, it it's, the most,
1: it's the most dangerous weapon in all unarmed hand-to-hand combat. Uh, I just wanted to say shout out to John Anik, frankly, for admitting in the middle of this fight that sometimes the flyweights move so fast that it's hard to keep track of what is happening because I think he's saying what we're all thinking. Uh, I was actually surprised when they... Recited the stats during the second round from this fight that Brandon Moreno was creating such a lopsided advantage in the in the strikes, because up until that point, I was like, oh, it seems pretty competitive. But then you start looking at the actual landed strikes and Brandon Moreno was kind of tuning him up.
2: Well, and one of the things that you see, especially in this pairing between these two particular guys, is that in the span of 30 seconds, so much can happen and it can swing so much. And like you, you saw at one point where for one thing, uh, I about jumped out of my seat when Brandon Moreno was gonna go hit like a fucking De La Hiva sweep kind of shit uh, on Davis and Figueroa. But then gets a, a dope ass sweep from the bottom on a standing Davy figs charges up off of his back on the heels of that sweep almost gets guillotined then pops out of the guillotine and then is raining down raining down strikes from above and all that is in the span of about 30 seconds and yeah. th- and that's just at any one point of that fight where just so much is happening that it's hard to keep up with whereas when you're watching the light heavyweight title fight you know the, we got some periods where we're, we're kind of standing there testing the range waiting for the next big thing to happen and it's just a completely different game at 125 so like I, I can absolutely understand that part as for your your comment earlier that hey we might see this again just because you know Brandon Moreno might stay at the top Davidson Figueredo might work his way back up there I mean it seems to me I, I really appreciated Brandon Moreno's comments afterwards especially when he was talking about having a run-in with Alexander Pantoja afterwards about like you know Him saying, when are we going to fight? Give me a date right now. How about this spring? And he's just like, hey, man, you're going to have to give me at least one night of just enjoying this. Like it just happened. I just won this fight. Can you give me just one night? before I have to start thinking about like planning the next one out and like you act like I'm in charge of this shit. Like I can just call up the UFC and be like April 9th and hang up the phone. And that's like (laughs) everybody knows it's not how it works. So I understand him being a little frustrated with that. But also I appreciated that he was like, hey, I get it. Me and Davison, we started this in December 2020. And here it is finally finishing in early 2023. Everybody else in the division has got to be a little fucking fed up with it. Like I get it. And it's like this is a, a reasonable goddamn man right here. Yeah. Brandon yeah. Moreno. He he can see things from other people's perspective, e- even when the emotions are running high.
1: Yeah. The last time somebody else fought for the UFC men's flyweight title was Alex Perez against Davison Figueredo at UFC 255 in November of 2020. So it's been a while since we had somebody else apply for the men's 125 pound title. Uh, Brandon Moreno, super likable. Obviously, I think he's a good champion for that weight class right now. That grappling exchange that you mentioned uh, in the second round where basically Moreno got a takedown and then Figueredo reversed it and then Moreno hit that ankle pick and then got up and damn near got choked. Is like one of the great grappling exchanges in recent memory in this sport, frankly. Uh, So Brandon Moreno, he's an exciting fighter. I like his style. He also seems very reasonable i believe he's the only ufc fighter at this point with a mickey mouse tattoo or only ufc <laughs> champion <laughs> that I you should know say. of yeah he's the only ufc champion with a mickey mouse tattoo i think i can say uh in fairly confident fashion uh, and so it's you know it's it's great to have him there i think both for fans and for the ufc and uh maybe we will get to see him fight somebody else who knows
2: who knows indeed
1: All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, Jose Aldo is going into the hall, and of course by that I mean the UFC Hall of Fame. And to the extent that that Hall of Fame means anything in the grand scheme of things, this is not one I think we can argue with. Jose Aldo 100% deserves to be in the UFC Hall of Fame. You can tell the level of his greatness with the speed with which they will put him in the hall, right? Like the guy just retired in August of 2022 after his loss to Murab Dvalishvili. And basically the next chance you get, first ballot Hall of Fame style. They're like, immediately we will put Jose Aldo into the Hall of Fame. And the man deserves it. One of the most impressive champions I think we have ever seen, especially in the WEC era. And then came in to really kickstart the UFC men's featherweight division. Uh, and was a, a heck of a champion in the octagon as well. So I got I got no complaints with Jose Aldo as long as we're going to keep it inside the fence, brother.
2: Yeah. Do you think that maybe part of the decision to go ahead and do this now? I mean, for one thing, we're going down there in Brazil, uh, and who knows, you know, when the next time you'll get this opportunity to sort of celebrate him in front of the home crowd is. Uh, but is it also a little bit of like, hey, aren't you enjoying retirement? Stay that way we're going to go ahead and put you into the hall of fame so that it feels a little more solidified that you won't fight again. Right. Really done this time. Yeah.
1: Well, it also comes at a bit of an awkward time because I'm looking at an MMA fighting story right now published on January 8th. The headline of which says Jose Aldo's professional boxing debut targeted for February 10th in Brazil. That's by Guillerme Cruz. Obviously that is a separate sport, but it's just, you know, combat sports, man. You don't, you don't see this a ton, uh, in the other mainstream sports, certainly in the wake of somebody like Bo Jackson and Michael Jordan. It's not as though this happens all the time that a guy would say, retire from baseball and try to go play football or something like that. But here we have Jose Aldo going into the UFC hall of fame less than a month before he's supposed to strap on the big boxing gloves and get started over there. So eh, a little awkward.
2: Yeah, well, and as you alluded to at the top of the show, there is also that whole thing about how uh, maybe the ex-president of Brazil was planning a coup from Jose Aldo's spare bedroom in Florida. So that seems like also an awkward time to be celebrating the guy. But if you're going to just point out what he did as a fighter, you're right. There's no case that you can make against Jose Aldo being in the Hall of Fame. Um, yeah. that is a, what he has had is a hall of fame career. And also, you know, he made some comments afterwards where he felt like, Hey, I thought maybe I could have continued on and still done some stuff, but it was the right time. And I can't even really disagree with that because one of the things yeah. that we were saying about this guy was when he put together a three fight win streak there in between the losses to Peter Jan and Murad Balashvili is that you know, he, he was at a point in his career. And especially for those lighter weight classes where, People don't tend to drop down a weight class at that age, at that point in their career, and still be good, and still be competitive. Usually, it's just like a, a sad stopgap measure that people try. And they go, okay, I'll just wipe the slate clean and be at this new weight class. And then you figure out there was a reason you weren't at that weight class before. And uh, you know it doesn't work out any better for you down there. And for him, it actually did. And that was surprising, I I think, to to see Jose Aldo go on that little win streak. I still think there's an alternate universe out there where TJ Dillashaw admits in advance that his shoulder is fucked and he has no business fighting for a title. And you see Jose Aldo maybe get a chance in there. Uh, I don't know. But I do think that when you just look at not only where he was at his peak, um, but also where he, what he managed to do late in his career once he was past that peak and still was really fucking good and was nobody that you could mess around with. You gotta admit, he's one of the best to ever do it at that weight class.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. And as I have said before, I don't know if I would say it is a shame, but it's kind of mind-blowing when you consider that he actually did his best, most dominant work in the WEC. That was where we saw a lot of these Jose Aldo highlights that just didn't even seem like they were possible. Yeah. Uh, the jumping, double jumping, flying knee on Cub Swanson among them, but also just like you would have to look pretty hard to find a more dominant fighter than Jose Aldo was during those WEC days. It was like you could set your watch to Jose Aldo beating the shit out of somebody in the WEC. And then he comes to the UFC and he has a great, extended, also dominant title reign there but you know the kind of absent a lot of the really high level highlights breathtaking stuff that we had seen in the in the WEC so uh if you are a new fan that hasn't seen some of that stuff do yourself a favor and go back and watch some of that WEC action uh featuring Jose Aldo because it was it was pretty amazing and you were right to say that he this is the rare MMA retirement where we kind of felt he could have kept going at least for a while if he wanted to. He finished up three and one in his last four. Of course, the last one being that loss uh that I just talked about. But right before that three fight win streak that he had, he fought for the vacant bantamweight championship against Peter Yawn at UFC 251. So still performing at the highest level, you know, in the in the twilight of his MMA career, which is Pretty amazing when you think about it. We very, very rarely see that. And here we have it from Jose Aldo. So hopefully he coasts into retirement with a couple of easy boxing matches and then he can just go be a hamburger magnate down there in Brazil and hopefully not try to overthrow the government again at any point. (laughs) All right, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here this week. Uh, Ben, I couldn't help but notice that... uh, our guy, Ariel Hawani this past week retweeted a video of Tyson Fury, making it sound like he is at the very least interested in entertaining the notion of fighting Francis Ngannou. Now, Tyson Fury himself is going to pitch a very, very high concept meeting with Francis Ngannou. Said he wanted <laughs> MMA gloves in a cage with boxing rules refereed by Mike Tyson. Now, I have no idea where you would get that sanctioned or even what that would look like. Uh, But like I said, at the very least, it sounds like Tyson Fury wants to have a conversation with Francis Ngannou, whether that be in public or in private. So I guess this week I'm just saying that all the haters on the Internet can maybe go suck a fuck. Oh, no. What do you think about that? Maybe Francis Ngannou will get a high, high dollar boxing match out of this UFC departure.
2: I wasn't expecting it to go that way at the end. Well, that's a little bit I of mean, a there, surprise. That's, wh-
1: that's where we went.
2: People about to suck a fuck. Wow. Okay. Just saying. I'm just saying. Yep. No. I'm just saying, Ben. You are just saying some stuff, some memorable stuff. Well, this week, my just saying is kind of a just asking. Chad, <laughs> Wait, are you just asking questions? I'm just asking. Did we get what we wanted out of this Shogun Hua fight with, with Ihor Portieria, the duelist? Do we get what we wanted out of that? Because here it is. We know it's going to be Shogun's last fights down here in Brazil. uh, We match him up with this guy who immediately, you know, comes in as kind of a hefty favorite because we've frankly seen what Shogun has left and it's not a ton. And then, you know, sure enough, as expected, goes in there, clips him, down goes Shogun. Uh, You know, we end up with a, a sort of a quick knockout finish Now you have the Duelist, 26 years old, 19 and 3, having dispatched Shogun and then done his little celebration over the crumpled body of an MMA hero, an elder statesman. And I just want to know, is that what we wanted? Did we get what we wanted out of it? Because it seems like we're doing the thing. The only thing we know how to do in the MMA promoter playbook is old guy leaving must give shine to new guy coming. And so we take this guy, you know, only got a couple fights in the organization. We want to want to put some shine on his name. You match him up here so he can get a win over uh, an older guy. Um, and yet kind of seems to me like it didn't exactly endear him to any fans. <laughs> like maybe everybody was like, fuck this guy.
1: Yeah, man, you think knocking out Shogun and then doing your little dance down there in Brazil uh, is going to, like, win over the crowd? I don't know, man. He
2: almost turned people against Ukraine for crying out loud (laughs) at at its most vulnerable time. Because people were just like, "What this guy? Fuck this guy. What does he think he's doing? Doing his little dueling celebration over there against Like, I, I just... I understand the thinking here because it's as old as fight sports itself. Where it's like, oh, the new guy's got to hand the torch to the old guy, or, or, or vice versa, and it's got to come in the form of a depressing beatdown for some reason, rather than matching Shogun Hua up against, a, you know, one of his someone who's closer to a peer, a fight that he might have had a little bit better of a chance to win. And yet, I don't know. Did you get what you wanted out of that? Because it doesn't seem like he necessarily gave a whole lot of shine to the new guy. I'm just saying, just asking,
1: just asking, just asking questions. All right. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Of course, for $20 patrons of the co-main event coming up right now, we have after hours where we are going to talk about a subject close to the heart of Ben Folks. So that's coming up right now. I'm excited about it. Uh, thanks to everybody else for listening. We will be over at the Patreon page all week. Check us out, patreon.com co-main event, or we'll see you next Monday for the proper. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. And you want to you wanna tell the people what you're excited about? What's the topic that you picked out for After Hours? What you want to talk about this week?
2: Chad, I'm just going to tell it to you like this. Sage Northcutt is back, baby.
1: (laughs) Oh, I know you are excited to get back on the Sage Northcutt beat. It has been too long since Ben Foulkes was given the green light to to talk about potentially his favorite fighter of all time, Sage Northcutt. You got to be excited about this proposed return.
2: It's been four years since we last saw Sage Northcutt. you recall that Sage Northcut exited the UFC on a 3 fight winning streak. By the way, yeah, 11 and 2. 11 and 2 and the UFC was just like, "Oh, you know what? We still somehow decided that it's not working out even though we tried so hard to make it